You're tuned to Tigerberg on 104FM. It's a hearty good evening from me, Denise Williams, our weekly medical program, Teger Medis, and uh, we're going to speak on organ transplant tonight. And I have two guests. Let me introduce the first one. Sister Fiona McCurdy, she's the Senior Transplant Coordinator at Grotesque Hospital. Is that right, Sister Fiona? That's correct, yes. Thank Welcome. You. Thank you very much. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Thank you. Luke and I, my colleague Luke Steenkamp and I, are the transplant coordinators at Grotesque Hospital. Hospital. Our work encompasses a lot of different things, one being talking to families who've lost a loved one, asking if they would consider donating their loved one's organs. We also deal with families when there's living kidney donation involved. And then we also do a lot of public education, just as we are doing now. We also go and do talks to all our medical colleagues. We go to churches, schools, and all that sort of thing. And we're involved in quite a bit of research with the doctors on a day-to-day basis. Right. So now let us meet Luke Steenkamp. Luke, good evening and welcome. Good evening. Thank you very much. All right. Was that a good explanation of the work you do? That was perfect. Anything you want to add? Just that I really enjoy working with Sister McCurdy and I really enjoy being part of the transplant team as, an, as a transplant coordinator. So right. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah. Once again, welcome to Tiger Medical this uh, Wednesday evening. One of the quotations I found on the great, wonderful Google, it says, organ donors are the real heroes. And this person says, I'm here today. This is a, somebody by the name of Chris King. I'm here today because of one. I'm forever grateful, forever humbled by that. Another one says, without my heart transplant, I know I would not have lived to see my 18th birthday. And today I'm working towards a college graduation and have wonderful plans for the future. Do you commonly hear that? We do. And funnily enough, it's usually the heart recipients that are the most vocal. I don't know whether it's because the heart has more of a a catch to it that somebody who receives a heart just feels that much more grateful or is able to express it better. But yes, we do fortunately have a lot of recipients who are vocal about their thanks and so on. But just to say, we've got kidney recipients who are equally grateful. And just thinking of someone that was in the clinic the other day, he's had his kidney for 40 years. Mm. And it's an amazing thing. He has lived a full good life. He's almost 70 now, and he couldn't be more grateful. He actually baked a cake and and so on to say thank you to everybody. And unfortunately, we haven't got contact with the family who donated the kidney to him, but he was certainly saying that if it hadn't Mm. been for that family and that person, he wouldn't have had 40 years with Mm. his family. So we have so many questions for you. Once again, welcome. And if you've just tuned in, it's Sister Fiona McCurdy that's in the studio with me. And she's the Senior Transplant Coordinator at Grotesque Hospital and that for over 20 years. And accompanying her is Luke Steenkamp, their colleagues. He's the Transplant Coordinator at Grotesque Hospital. So let's start with those many questions. I think the first one that we would like to hear from you is stats. How many organs are transplanted annually, Sister Fiona? Well, about 500 are transplanted annually, which doesn't sound too bad until you hear that actually there's four and a half thousand people on the waiting list at any one time. So it's actually a drop in the ocean. It doesn't make us any less grateful to the people who have donated, but we certainly need a lot more families to say yes and to uh, agree to organ donation so that we can transplant more and more people. One of the sad things is that we have a restriction on dialysis facilities in the state sector, so we cannot dialyze everybody that we want to. And if we don't get patients off by transplanting them off, then we can't put new patients on. So in fact, somebody who donates two kidneys from a loved one's body is actually saving four patients because 
making space for two new patients mm. to be saved. The other aspect in terms of looking at stats is that about a third of patients that are on the heart and liver waiting lists actually die while they're waiting because an organ hasn't become available. They don't have machines that can keep them going like the kidney patients have dialysis. So 500, we're grateful, but it needs to be so much more. Yeah, that's always very sad if you lose someone because of, as you say, an organ not being readily available. So, Sister Fiona, how many people are on the waiting list? You, you've mentioned that there's about five operations annually. How many do you have on the waiting list? At any one time in the country, there's probably four, four and a half thousand patients. That includes tissues as well as solid organs. So we're talking about corneas and so on. Just at Khritskia Hospital, we've probably got about 300 patients waiting for organs combined, you know, heart, liver and kidney. So it's an, it's an awful lot of people. Yeah, so it's not just your heart or your kidneys that can be transplanted. What are the other organs? So it's heart, liver, kidneys pancreas in some diabetic patients, lungs, and then we can also talk about tissues, which is corneas, skin, and bone. Which organ is the most commonly transplanted? Kidneys, simply because we've got many more people waiting for kidneys than any other organ because we can at least keep them going until we find one. And when we do a transplant, as I mentioned just now, we give one kidney to one person and one to another from one donor. And then that makes space for two more patients to come onto dialysis. So they are the most common transplant. How is brain death ascertained and by whom, Sister Fiona? Right. Okay. Let's let's give a little bit of detail here. I think because there's a lot of people that have misconceptions about how this all works. Basically, what we're looking at is doctors in a trauma unit, in an emergency unit, in an ICU who have a patient who has got a very low level of consciousness, who seems to have deteriorated, and unfortunately, whatever they've tried hasn't worked. They then look at what is the prospect for this person? Is their brain actually functioning? And there are a series of tests that doctors can do in conjunction with things like CT scans and and angiograms of the brain to see whether that brain is functioning. And sadly, in a number of cases, that brain has sometimes died. What it's usually because of is a brain hemorrhage, there becomes swelling in the brain, the blood supply to the actual brain tissue is not sufficient for that brain tissue to continue functioning. And when there's pressure inside the brain, inside the skull, there can be downward pressure onto an area called the brain stem. Now the brain stem is right at the back of the bottom of the brain, sort of at the back of the neck. And that's an area where your breathing gets controlled, your Blood pressure gets controlled, your temperature, all your brainstem reflexes causing you to react to pain, to blink, to all, basically your basic life supporting systems are controlled by that brainstem. And when Mm. you've had a lot of brain damage, that brainstem takes a knock as well. And in the extreme case, it can have died. And Mm. the tests that the doctors do test all those reflexes, test to see is any part of what that area of the brain should be doing, is it happening? And if the whole scenario shows with all the tests that are listed that are required to be done, if everything comes back as negative, there's no reaction, that means that the person is brain dead. Just to say that I think what confuses some people is they read in the paper or they hear by word of mouth that so-and-so's friend or family member was brain dead in the hospital and a week later they walked out and so you can survive with brain death. And I'd like to take this opportunity to say that that person that walked out, having been the family being told that he was brain dead, was not brain dead. You cannot survive if you've reached the end point of brain death. 
the word was used probably a little bit too loosely to explain a bad situation or what looked like a hopeless situation, or maybe there was a misunderstanding. But brain death tests that are done according to mm. the internationally accepted criteria and are documented properly, completed as they should be, a person won't recover from it. There's no record of a person who was declared brain dead actually recovering. Mm. It sounds very much like we're saying we're just giving up, but we're not. We're actually making coming to a point where one can then follow on with decisions and understanding of a tough situation. A person who's brain dead is always on a ventilator because they can't breathe for themselves, is being kept warm with a blanket because they can't keep themselves warm. And it's difficult for some families to actually understand how mm. serious the situation is because the person doesn't look that bad. But it's a an end point that needs to be reached before we start asking and talking about organ donation. The Health Act, Chapter 8, actually gives directions as to who may certify a patient's brain dead. It very clearly says that the transplant team may not be involved, that it's two doctors who are properly qualified that have to do it. So there's no shortcuts and there's no taking chances. It's a very clearly set out system that works. And we come in once those doctors have certified the patient and explained the situation to the family. It's only then we as coordinators would come in mm. and approach the family about organ donation. What part of the body shuts down last? It is said, and I don't know if it's ever been proven, that hearing as a sense is what shuts down last. In terms of physical activities, once the heart stops, everything stops. So if we stop ventilating a patient and stop giving oxygen, then the heart will very quickly run out of oxygen to keep it going and then everything else will stop pretty much at the same time because it's not getting none of the other organs are getting oxygen to allow them to function properly. And with us in the studio is also Luke Steenkamp. He's been rather quiet, but he's right here. So welcome, Luke. Thank you. Thank you very much. Luke, how does your role and that of Sister Fiona coincide? Well, there are basically two transplant coordinators at Kruiskia Hospital. And um, last year, Sister Fiona's partner actually left and resigned, and they were actually looking for someone to fill that role. And um, I got the opportunity to then fill the role and, and work with Sister McCurdy. So I'm actually kind of an apprentice, and she's kind of my teacher. Right. So I'm still learning the trade. I actually started last year in, in 2016, October 2016. So what usually happens is we are on call together, alternate days or however the roster would work out. And um, when we're on call, depending who's on call, will depend on who goes out. If we get calls from other hospitals concerning potential donors, hospitals that are within our drainage area, Curtis Cure Hospital's drainage area. So we are responsible for, for going out and then assessing the patients, speaking to the families concerning organ donation. It is tough, but it's something that, that needs to be done. And also asking if they're, they're kind enough to be able to donate the organs of their loved ones so that, you know, in terms of helping other people as well. We work with other transplant coordinators as well, from Tigerberg, Christian Barnard, and people in, in Joburg and all across the country in terms of getting referrals and getting paperwork sorted. And we also make sure that everybody who's a transplant coordinator is on the same page as how to manage donors so that, you know, no one person has one set of rules and another person has another set of rules so that we're all on the same page as mm -hmm. how, how things work. It's a huge responsibility, 
And it's a very broad aspect concerning our, our work and, 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 and what we do. Yeah, and we're also happy to have you here, I must say, five days after uh, International Nurses Day. You are mm-hmm. both registered with the South African Nursing Council, yeah, right. so you are, in fact, both nurses. That's right. So it's really great to have you here. Thank you. Sister Fiona, how does one become an organ donor? It is the simplest thing in the world. There's two aspects to it. The first is to tell your family that should anything happen to you and the doctors approach them for consent or the coordinators do, to say yes. My family member wanted it, and the law requires that the family gives consent. And if they know what you want, it's very easy. They will follow through with that. We know that from experience, that there's very rarely a family who will say, no, I don't really want it if they know what your wishes are. If you would like to register with the Organ Donor Foundation, that is also a way of of becoming a donor. It's really just emphasizing the seriousness of how you feel. Putting yourself on the register at the Organ Donor Foundation doesn't mean that at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, a coordinator can check and see whether you're on or not. But it's a way of saying to your family, I've registered with the Organ Donor Foundation. I'm serious. I want to be a donor. The Organ Donor Foundation has a website that's very easy to find and you can register online for that. Mm. And I think the other big question, under which circumstances are organs not viable for donation? Does that happen? Are all organs okay? Or is that sometimes not the case? It does occasionally happen that a patient is referred to us as a potential donor. And when we go and assess the person, they're actually not suitable possibly because they've got a very bad medical history and the organs would have been damaged. It could be that the traumatic incident they were involved in resulted in the organs not being suitable. Sometimes they're just too old and it's not a disrespectful thing, but we've got to be practical as to Mm. what organs will be in good enough condition to transplant into somebody. Having said that, we will use organs from 60-year-olds and over, so we always ask doctors, refer everybody to us, and we can use them. There are also times when we can maybe use the kidneys from a particular donor, but not the other organs. So it's a question of us assessing the patient as they are referred to Mm. us. And not to sound crude, but it's almost as if you want to know whether the organ has a shelf life. You know, can it, how long would it be able to operate well and function well within the the one receiving the transplant? Absolutely. We we want to help them. So we don't, we want to give them the best possible chance of a normal life afterwards. When we chat to families asking for consent, we explain that to them. We explain that if we do tests and so on and find that there's been some damage to the organ, we're not going to be able to use it because it's not actually going to be a good thing for the recipient. And then, uh, Sister Fiona, talk us through the consent or the medical legal requirements. Clearly, we've got to have the patient certified brain dead. We have to have family's consent, and that would be the next of kin, so it would be parents or siblings, adult siblings, adult children, spouses. Once they've signed consent and they are able to sign specifically for which organs they're prepared to donate or not donate, once we've got that, we also then have to have consent from the state pathologist or district surgeon if it's a police case, if the death is due to unnatural causes, and the medical manager of the establishment where Mm. the uh, procurement of organs is going to take place also has to give us consent and we have to show that we have done all the appropriate testing and HIV testing and so on. So we don't, as I've said before, it's not something we do by taking shortcuts. It's a long process and it's a very careful process. Thank you, Sister Fiona. Let's look at a bit of a Christian viewpoint. Luke, back to you, Luke Steenkamp. Are there some biblical misconceptions regarding organ donation? Do you come across those? Yeah, when when talking to people, Denise, we find a lot of uh, folks, Christians, are very weary of the body 
the reason for not donating or not being able to donate is because they say that their loved one or their family member needs to go back to Jesus the way he came. And if I may just calm the fears of all listeners that you don't have to worry about the body. What is important is the soul. Jesus came to save your precious soul and my precious soul. Our body, as the Bible says, is a body of sin. In mm. Genesis chapter 3, if you look there, God spoke to Adam and he said, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 20, All are from dust, and all return to dust. So that's talking about the body, not in terms of salvation, but the body. And the apostle uh, Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. It says, he says, their flesh and blood, that's the body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So when we die, everybody knows, irrespective of, of, of what background you are, you go into, into the ground and your body decays. Mm. But again, in 1 Corinthians 15, if you are in Jesus, if you are in Christ, you're going to get a new body at the day of resurrection. So you don't have to worry about not donating the, the organs of your loved one because you view the body as sacred. Our bodies are a body of sin, and that's why we get older. That's why we suffer pain. That's why we, we hurt and we, we suffer all this emotional suffering and the physical suffering because our bodies is a body of sin. So there's no reason as, as, as Christians or anybody else, in my personal opinion, mm-hmm. not to be able to donate organs. I mean, God can, can use that kidney, that liver, that heart, those lungs, those tissues to bring joy and happiness to someone who needs it and to further the quality mm-hmm. and the quantity of that particular person's life. And it's a wonderful thing and a very fulfilling and rewarding thing to have someone benefit from organ donation. And when you bring the message across to others that may be where these misconceptions have previously existed, do you find a more willingness and an openness towards uh, donating organs? Because I, I feel I, I'm convinced. <laughs> Hallelujah. I've, I've, uh, well, praise God. I haven't had a lot of people to talk to, and that's why we, we, we want to bring more awareness to folks. Great. Um, I've had one or two folks that I have spoken to about uh, about this, and it's almost as though, you know, they, they give me this, this, this look and, and as if to say, you know, I never thought about it that way before. Mm. You know, this is new information. Wow. It's almost, I wish I knew this before, you know, before they switched off the machines or before... The family said no. So I think it's important that more people know about this, and, and particularly as Christians, the biblical aspect of that, that, you know, the body is not sacred. It's, it's a body of sin. We can donate. Our souls are going to go to heaven to be with Jesus. The, uh, the Apostle Paul again said, I am absent from the body, but I am present with the Lord. So the last thing that's going to be on our minds when we're with Jesus is, what state is my body in? So organ donation is a wonderful thing. It's the miracle of life. It's a good thing. And, you know, the greatest thing, Denise, is the fact that the Father gave us and donated us the best mm. thing in, 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 totally. in life, which is Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And he gave his life's blood. He gave his life so that, so that people could be saved. So I don't think that there's anything wrong as in Christians or anybody else donating the, the organs of their loved one because it brings such wonderful fulfillment and purpose. Well, our hearts resonate with that. Thank yeah. you. Luke, we'll also take that as your take-home message, really heartwarming. Sister Fiona, what would be your take-home message to us tonight? My take-home message is to say thank you to everybody who has donated their loved one's organs. It's a tough time, and to actually be able to think of others at a time when you've just lost a loved one is is special, and, and we really want to thank them sincerely. But I want to also add, which is something I haven't usually said, is the people who might be listening that said no, please don't ever feel that it's feel guilty. At a tough time, it was not something you could deal with, and we understand that. 
But hopefully this discussion will, will make a few people think about things. Yeah. I've met a very young medical student. She's a doctor now and she has these medical alert bracelets. And when I inquired about that, she said, oh, it's because I'm an organ donor. If something happens to me, they'll know exactly that I want to donate my organs. Just once again, Sister Fiona, how does anybody who wants to get in contact or know more about this get in contact with you? They can get in contact with me at Kretzky Hospital. I'm based there. And if they were to phone the Kretzky Exchange and ask for the transplant coordinator, they'd be put through to me. We have got a system where they could find me wherever I am in the hospital. But the Organ Donor Foundation is also well equipped to answer many, many questions. Um, and so they've got a very good website and there are people that um, can answer a toll-free number if they need it. Thank you. And that's the voice of Sister Fiona McCurdy. She's the Senior Transplant Coordinator at Grootskia Hospital. And with her in the studio tonight, Luke Steenkamp is the Transplant Coordinator at Grootskia Hospital. Take care. Thank you, Thank you very, very much. much.